Welcome back to Safe Tea. Today, we're talking about eating disorders. I'm joined again by my co-host, Jack. Jack, hi. Nice to have you. How are you? Yeah. Hi, Georgia. I'm doing great. Good to be back in the studio. I'm really excited about the pod today because I think eating disorders are really important to talk about. They're a lot more prevalent than they seem. And I think as we'll talk about today, eating disorders, like all mental health disorders, can be easy to overlook because they can be easy to miss. And contrary to popular belief, you can't just look at someone and know that they have an eating disorder. But this really makes them all the more important to talk about. So true, Jack. You bring up some great points. You know, eating disorders are very common here in the U.S. And in 2005, the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance Survey found that 6.2% of girls and 2.8% of boys reported vomiting or taking laxatives in the past month to lose or maintain weight, which is so sad. And then 28.8 million Americans will have an eating disorder in their lifetime, which actually comes out to be honestly about 10% of the population. Holy cow. Yeah. When you think about it, that's a significant number. Part of the reason I think eating disorders are so common is, you know, we have the pressures from social media, advertising, and pop culture that can create these unrealistic body image expectations that can really, I think, lend to someone developing an eating disorder. Right on. I think it's a very important point to talk about. And it's no surprise that these pressures and high expectations are strongest in a place like Hollywood, where actors are under immense pressure to appear a certain way in front of the camera, which can lead to either eating disorders or or unhealthy eating patterns. I think a great example, one of my favorite actors, Christian Bale, he once lost 60 pounds in four months for The Machinist. And I think a lot of people will praise that as dedication to his craft, but it's also extremely unhealthy and it kind of sets an unrealistic expectation. But what was really interesting when I was reading about this for the pod is that For a lot of famous people, actually, their eating disorders came long before they were famous. And I think that suggests that, yeah, you know, there's a lot going on with body image expectations with social media and advertising, but that also means that there's a lot of stuff going on well before that, like genetics and maybe family history that also play into these eating disorders. So I actually wanted to mix it up for you, Georgia, and read you a quote about a famous singer and her eating disorder, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. We're going to see if you can guess it. So the quote goes, I used to throw up all the time in high school, so I'm not that confident. I wanted to be a skinny little ballerina, but I was a voluptuous little Italian girl whose dad had meatballs on the dinner table every night. Any idea who that could be? I have no clue, Jack. Enlighten me. (laughs) It's not a very fair thing to ask you to guess, but it's actually Lady Gaga, and she has bulimia, and like we were saying, it started well before she was famous. It was so bad, actually, that her vomiting was damaging her throat and made her unable to sing. And I know it's easy to be distracted by her fun songs and all of her glamorous and sometimes ridiculous outfits. But, you know, behind all that show business, there's a real person there who struggles with an eating disorder. Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, girls everywhere are subject to so much pressure, whether it's from society or advertising. And I think Lady Gaga is a really great example that she didn't, you know, she didn't think she fit the mold of this skinny little ballerina. So she began to use vomiting to lose weight and try to fit into that mold. I think this bar of body perfection is only getting higher. And now that we have the filters and mm-hmm. all these other crazy things on social media, it's no surprise to me that girls are two to three times more likely to have an eating disorder as compared to their male counterparts. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that statistic up, Georgia. You know, while women are more likely to have an eating disorder, there's still a lot of guys out there who do struggle with similar, you know, unrealistic body image expectations and eating disorders themselves. And, you know, as the man of this podcast, (laughs) got to look out for my fellow men out there. And when I was reading, I found out that men are actually more likely to die from an eating disorder, um, even though they're not quite as frequent in men. So I have another celebrity to talk about here. Like Lady Gaga, Russell Brand actually also has bulimia. And just like Lady Gaga, his bulimia started around the age of 11 with binging and vomiting. So well before he got to Hollywood, well before he was famous. And he said in an interview about it, quote unquote, It was really unusual in boys, quite embarrassing. And I thought this quote was really interesting because to me it's kind of implying, or maybe he's insinuating that binging behavior, it's more normal in women than it is in men. Yeah, it's a great point, Jack. While binging behaviors are common, that doesn't make them normal, no matter what gender you identify as Mm -hmm. or in between. And it really does seem like the pressure from society can can be that added layer to drive people to do whatever it takes to look like they think that they should. You know, I was doing some research for this podcast. I was trying to find a study that kind of backs up that point. Actually, I came across a great study while doing research for the pod that demonstrates a powerful connection between social pressure and eating disorders. And this study actually follows the people of Fiji. Fiji is a small island on the Pacific Ocean 
probably best known for being on the cover of a good water bottle. So interestingly enough, kind of before the 1990s, this island was very isolated and it didn't have a lot of connection to, you know, Western ideals and Western culture. And in this study, the ideal female body was quote unquote heavier and more robust. And at that time, actually, there was only one documented case of an eating disorder prior to the mid-1990s. This began to change as this traditionally isolated island became exposed to Western culture through TV. So in the late 1990s, TV was introduced into the island. And since then, multiple studies have reported a large surge of eating disorders and even kind of a shift in the way people describe the ideal body type. So no longer does Fijian society value the heavier and more robust woman, Now, in studies, they describe the ideal woman as conforming to the Western thin ideal. And it's definitely not a one-to-one connection of TV and eating disorders. There's a lot of other factors going on, but it does maybe suggest that there is some sort of link going on there. Wow, I had no idea. Such a good example of how our Westernized beauty ideal clearly has a huge impact on eating disorders. And I think it's important to say that we don't think all advertising in media is bad, but we want you to be aware that the way that they portray beauty is not only unrealistic, but can be dangerous too. Yeah. And I think, you know, we can talk about statistics and studies all day long until the cows come home. But I think what's really important is to hear it from somebody and to hear somebody's story. So we have brought in a returning guest today on the podcast, one of Rachel's friends, Laura, to come in and talk to us about her experience with an eating disorder. Laura's our first returning guest to the podcast. So we're super happy to have you back, Laura. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jack and Georgia, for having me today. Thanks for being here. So, Laura, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you knew Rachel? Absolutely. So, obviously, my name is Laura. I am a medical device sales rep out in Seattle, Washington. I met Rachel when I was about six years old. I had just moved to Indiana, and she actually lived right behind me. Our backyards were connected. So, we met and basically spent every day together growing up. I know it's not easy to talk about eating disorders in general, and it's even harder on a podcast over Zoom. So thank you so much for being brave and talking with us today. Why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about your eating disorder and just kind of the overall spark notes of of your experience? So I guess it really just kind of trails back. My whole life, I was a perfectionist. I think I got it from my dad. (laughs) So everything had to kind of have a place. If anything went wrong, I wasn't always the most flexible. So when I was about 14, I would say I started to have some issues just with like eating in general. I just would get really sick and I couldn't really pinpoint what it was. So I kind of started to avoid food. And then eventually I was diagnosed and I had to have my gallbladder removed. But during that point, I had begun to lose a ton of weight. When I went for my pre-op appointment, I stepped on the scale and I noticed that I had actually gone down to like 105 and I was mm-hmm. five foot seven at the time. I'm five foot eight now. So I was surprised to say the least. I called my mom over. I was like, you got to see, like, I'm, I'm so tiny. Mm-hmm. And she was like, there's no way you weigh that much. And, you know, like my sister and I, we always had this banter growing up, like, like typical siblings. I'd call her fat. She'd call me fat. It's just what we did. But I was also more sensitive. So over the years, I think I really did take some of that to heart, which she meant no harm by it. And I loved fashion. So I had like fashion magazines plastered all over my walls in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. And so after the gallbladder was out, I kind of noticed that the weight was starting to come back pretty quickly as I started eating again. And I wasn't like vomiting or, you know, the side effects from the gallbladder. And so I actually began restricting. I was just drinking as much water as I could, just trying to like keep the weight off. And I wasn't eating a meal. I tried to keep my restriction down to like 140 calories a day maximum. Like if I was absolutely desperate, I'd eat like a nature Valley bar. So it was getting pretty serious. And, you know, I ended up, I think at my lowest, I think I was about 98 pounds. And so people kind of started noticing and that's when I, I kind of realized I had a problem. Thank you, Laura, so much for sharing that. So to begin, did you always know you had an eating disorder? No, I, honestly would have never even thought that I would end up having an eating disorder. You know, you see it on TV and in magazines, but no. When the behaviors kind of started, it was really hard for me to, you know, process that what I was doing was wrong by any means. I think I kept trying to convince myself. Like I, I knew deep down that something wasn't right. I mean, eating 140 calories a day, that's not normal. 
but I don't think, you know, especially growing up, I never could have even imagined that I would ever even have an eating disorder. So I think it was hard to tell. And I think, you know, once people started kind of bringing it up to me, that's what made me come to the realization. When did your friends and family know about your eating disorder? And what do you think kind of tipped them off that you had an eating disorder? Yeah, my family was pretty unaware. I think they thought I was still just kind of recovering from the gallbladder. Mm-hmm. And none of my friends knew, not even Rachel. And again, Rachel and I shared everything. I was very just kind of, I didn't even think it was a problem. I didn't think I had a problem. I kept convincing myself everything's fine. So it wasn't until, you know, people started kind of pointing it out in gym class. They were like crowding around me. They were like, Laura's so skinny when you're changing. And so finally, once I had to admit that I had a problem, I went to my parents and I just sent them a text message. I avoided them all day. I didn't want to see them in person (laughs) because I didn't want to hear what they had to say. Yeah. I didn't go home. I went straight to the library. Yeah. (laughs) Went straight to my room when I got home. And then that's when they came up and kind of addressed it with me and did the best that they could. At this point, I look back and I was very, very skinny. But, you know, my mom called our GP, got me into the CARA Center for Eating Disorders. Like she was on it. I hated her then for it, but I thank her now. I always, (laughs) I called her the warden. Um, And then as far as my friends, they didn't know. The only friend that I finally told, and she didn't even know for the longest time, was Rachel. We told each other everything, so it was a hard secret to keep. I finally told her right before I was sent to the hospital that, you know, I, I'd been going to the car center, and that's why, I, you know, it was hard to keep from her. And then mm-hmm. I think the rest of our friends didn't even know until way after I got back from the hospital when yeah. it was kind of hard to say, like, I've been gone for a month. Something clearly wasn't mm-hmm. right. Yeah. How did your parents react? They were very surprised, and I think they were just kind of doing the best that they could because they had never experienced something like that before. So they they came in and they did the typical, like, I've, I've heard this is just so normal, but so mm. they did, like, the best that they could possibly do in that moment. Yeah, and how did Rachel react when she heard the news? So I finally told her we were actually at the movies, which was the worst time to tell her, but she and I both began bawling in the lobby of the AMC movie theater, and she just hugged me, and we were just sobbing. What would you say are some of the factors that contributed to your eating disorder? Were there life stressors? Was it peer pressure? Society? Can you talk a little bit to that? So I was a perfectionist and I still am. I like everything to have a place. I like everything to just be, I mean, for lack of a better term, perfect. So that, I mean, again, it's no different with my body or, you know, how I look. I, I always wanted to be put together, but I also, you know, wanted to be this skinny person. So I think that that was a huge factor. And then just like fashion, social media wasn't really a thing. I had magazines like stacked like Vogue um, and I would like plaster all the covers around my room and I just loved it. I always thought I was going to have a career in fashion. And so you see things like that with like the stick skinny models, like the heroin chic is what they used to call Kate Moss and I, I loved it. And I, you know, you still idolize it because that's what your society is telling you is beautiful. And so Kate Moss actually had that quote, nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. And I truly believed it at the time. And now I know <laughs> bread, carbs, like I love it. <laughs> Donuts. Um, <Yeah. laughs> food in general. <laughs> and then also just, I think like sisterly banter and like even just people at school, like you mean no harm by it. My sister and I were both stick thin growing up. Like we had great genes. We looked just like our mom, basically like a, a pole, but we would do the usual, you know, sisterly, like, oh, you're so fat or, you know, you look ugly today. Like she, we meant nothing by it. We are best friends now, but I was more sensitive than she was. So I think, you know, I really took it to heart and I really did look up to her. So I think honestly being like, oh, I don't know, does Natalie actually think that even though she doesn't? I think that that was huge for me too. But I think honestly, society was a huge factor. And then also, I think I just kind of had something in me where you're kind of almost born with it. And it's like something has to flip the switch. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of factors going on, you know, maybe some that you had as just being born a certain way. And then, you know, society and all those things kind of came together at at a certain moment. One thing I was curious is, you know, as you were starting to lose weight and, you know, people were making fun of you at gym class for being skinny, when you looked at yourself in the mirror at that time, did you feel like you were skinny or did you feel like you were a normal weight or did you think you looked overweight at that time? 
I would say that I still felt like I was a little bit overweight, which is pretty crazy. I think that I definitely had this idea that, you know, I had, if I could pinch my skin, I thought it was fat, but it was really just skin. And then also people commenting, well, you look so skinny. It was like, it fueled me. Like I loved like the feeling of like, yes, like they can tell I'm losing weight. This is great. I definitely had this disordered perception of my body. Mm -hmm. Mirrors and scales were probably my worst enemy just because, you know, the scale would say one thing and I still wouldn't believe it. And I wanted it lower. Um, Mm -hmm. I was addicted to stepping on the scale. And then I also looked in the mirror, I'd pull my skin and it wouldn't even, there'd be no fat. It was just skin. And I'd be like, Oh, still got a little bit to lose. So I think before, you know, being hospitalized, one of my therapists at the car center actually made me do this routine with her where she gave me a string of yarn and she asked me to make a circle and show her how big I think my thighs are around. And I made this like really large circle (laughs) and I think it was definitely way bigger. And so then she marked it and then made me take that same piece of yarn and wrap it around my actual thigh and then compare the size of the circles. And it was a huge difference between them. And she was like, how do you feel about that? Like, what does that make you think? And I was like, nothing, except for the fact that like, that could still be a smaller circle. Yeah. So there is a serious disconnect between kind of what somebody is trying to show you with reality and then what you were perceiving at the time. Exactly. I think what you're talking about is unfortunately somewhat common with, you know, young girls not really being able to accurately perceive what they look like. So tell me, Laura, did any of your friends have any similar behaviors that made it maybe harder to distinguish that yours were more in the disordered territory than than theirs? Mine were pretty unique, I think. And so none of my friends were partaking in any kind of restrictions, binging, purging, and most of them were athletes. So I feel like they were just constantly fueling their bodies too. Like, I mean, Rachel in high school would bring salmon salads for lunch. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) isn't that a faux pas to bring a fish fish in for lunch? (laughs) I don't know. I don't, people like were always jealous. I just didn't like salmon. That's a little healthy. (laughs) Rachel was a much fancier eater than I was at that time. I'm pretty sure I was on Pop-Tarts and Twinkies. (laughs) Laura, you know, before you went to the hospital and you were kind of at your thinnest weight, did you feel any different physically? Maybe were really tired all the time, had trouble concentrating, anything like that? So, yeah, I was physically exhausted. I would take naps and I'd usually go to bed around like three or four and I'd expect to wake up for dinner. My mom would come wake me up usually like seven o'clock and be like, Laura, dinner's ready. And I was like, no, I'm just so exhausted. And so Part of it was probably I was growing, but I was just physically so tired. And so usually I wouldn't wake up till about noon. So I'd mm-hmm. sleep from 3 p.m. till noon and especially on weekends. And Rachel and I actually had memberships to LA Fitness <laughs> and we would go work out together. And I was not feeling my body and I was putting all this exertion on my body. And so I would just go to the treadmill and I would just run. Mm-hmm. And I remember just like I would get so dizzy and lightheaded. You know, there were times where I like had actually passed out. Wow. I, I was at school and I just, and it was really brief. I just like collapsed and then got back up. And I was like, fine, I'm fine. Like pins and needles, black kind of uh-huh. eyesight and I was fine. Um, but I was just tired all the time and my body was just telling me something's not right. Yeah. And I'm sure your parents were probably just thinking you were a normal teenager sleeping all the time too. So it could be hard to tell. Exactly. Even when I was healthier, I was still sleeping all the time. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting to hear. So before we rudely interrupted you with a bunch of questions, you were telling us about your story and you were telling us that you had just spoken to Rachel and told her that you were going to go to the hospital for treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about what that treatment was like in the hospital? Maybe, you know, what they did to help you feel better, make you eat better, or, you know, how long you were in there, things like that? Absolutely. So I actually started out right when I first told my parents that I had the problem. I started out at the Cara Center in Indianapolis. So it's just an outpatient kind of facility where you go for therapy and they have a physician there who kind of tracks you. They're very specialized in eating disorders. And from there, that's when the physician determined to go to, you know, a hospital space setting just for my treatment for about a month. And she told me that I was going to be going that next week. So I really had no time to really tell anyone. And I hadn't told Rachel and 
hadn't even actually told my sister yet. She was away at college. And so I called my sister first and, you know, she began crying on the phone and this was the most common thing people said to me, but she said, how did you let it get so bad? Wow. And I remember just breaking down because she was just hurting. Like everyone didn't know what to say to me because they were so hurt. And so when I told Rachel that I was going, I was leaving that next day. So I took a month off school and I ended up in this treatment facility in one of our bigger hospitals. And it was scary. (laughs) And, you know, my first day at the hospital was extremely scary because I didn't know what to expect. I had never even heard of, you know, a behavioral care center. Mm -hmm. So I arrived and they confiscated my backpack and they had to do a thorough search through it. If I even had gum, they would take my gum away (laughs) just because it's still something that I use during my eating disorder behavior to like curb my hunger. Mm-hmm. You know, they, every day they would make me step on a scale blind. I couldn't see it. And then they would take my blood every two days or so just to make sure and track kind of my nutrients and make sure that my potassium was all right. And then, you know, it was just one of those things where you're with a bunch of random people that you've never met and they put you in a therapy with these people and you get really close. So it was nice to have you know, some new friendships form, Mm -hmm. but it was also extremely scary. Yeah. And my homework went by the wayside. We had a teacher and we had school for like two hours a day and that was it. And so I was very behind in school and they had a nutritionist that would work with me. And she started out by giving me very, very small portions because that's what my body was used to. I mean, it was used to less, but yeah. And then each day she would increase my intake, making sure that I was getting more calories and then hitting all the different food groups from like fats, carbs, whatever it was, I had to have everything on my Mm -hmm. plate. And by the end, I had two trays coming out to me and everyone in in this behavioral care center, they weren't there for eating disorders. So they'd be laughing and they're like, I wouldn't even be able to eat all that. And I was like, I know, I don't know how to finish it. (laughs) And if I threatened, you know, to not finish it, then that's when they would threaten me with, you know, a supplement drink that like high calorie boost. So it it was really stressful and I got pretty good at still like finding ways to hide my food because they warned me. They were like, nobody gets away with it. We'll find out. Like you'll get in (laughs) trouble. You'll lose privileges. And I still found ways. I was wearing boots at the time and I would sneak whatever I could grab off the tray without, you know, a nurse seeing it. And I would hide it in my, my boots. And so after that, that's when the doctor found out that I was hiding food in my boot. And she actually banned people from wearing boots. So Laura, was there anything after you got out of treatment, you know, that your family had to do to keep up the work you had been doing in treatment? Yeah, my mom to this day talks about it just because it was it was really hard on her. She had a lot, like all day, she had to just plan her day around me. So they covered my bathroom mirrors, like throughout the house, any mirror that I could see even half of my body had to be covered. And so she chose princess wrapping paper because I love Disney princesses. (laughs) And so she was like, at least it's something to look at. So I could only see my face while getting ready for school. She hid the scale and lost it. So now that I'm better, I would say, and I'm an adult and I could go buy a scale if I wanted to. I'm like, you should really put that scale back out at the house. And she doesn't even know where she hit it. She hit it that well. And then, you know, they taped the toilet shut because I was, you know, starting to partake in those purging behaviors. And so to ensure that like when I went to the bathroom or if I was taking a shower, I had a shower with the door open so my mom could sit out there and like wait to make sure that I'm not vomiting in the shower or, you know, ripping that tape up. And then her day was just planning my my meals because, you know, she had to ensure that I was hitting the calories that I had to hit based on the nutritionist. And so she said she would spend all day being like, okay, if I get her a banana, peanut butter, three pancakes, like my meals were huge, but she was like, okay, that's still not enough. So we're going to need like orange juice and this, and like her days were brutal. And then she's like, and then like, she knew that I hid food during meals. Like I would slide it up a sleeve, like in a pocket, like I was really fast. But at that point she was aware that I did it. So she thought she could catch me every time and still somehow I'd like slide a piece of bacon into my like sleeves. I wasn't allowed sleeves at dinner. And so I'd find a new way to hide it. Same thing with like a bagel. Like she once went up into my bathroom and found just a bagel in a drawer that I had forgotten to throw out. And she knew that I'd been hiding (laughs) food again. And she's always like, how did you do that? And so that's why I always called her the warden. And I like literally hated her at the time, but she (laughs) 
she did so much for me. So thanks, mom. So you mentioned that when you were in the hospital, you were in the hospital for a month. And as you said, you can't really hide being away from school for a month. How did people treat you when you got back from the hospital and you were back at school? My friends were very supportive. Some of the ones that weren't super close friends that just ate lunch with us, they had 8 million questions that they wanted to ask about it. And Mm -hmm. I just didn't really want to answer any of them. And, you know, I had Rachel there throughout it all, but, you know, teachers were pretty understanding. I had one that wasn't the most understanding and I actually ended up failing her class. I had to retake it the next year because I didn't get my homework in during the time at the hospital. And then there were just a lot of kids especially this group of guys, ironically, who, you know, just would bully and, you know, they would yell out at me in the hallways or at football games, like attention whore, or they call me an anorexic bitch. And I bought a pretzel at a football game one night and they were like, look, she eats. And I took a history class and I had, you know, sophomores in my class when I was a freshman and I hadn't even been hospitalized yet. And there were just rumors about me because I'd been losing the weight. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't even admitted to anyone, not even Rachel, that I had an eating disorder. And this girl looks at her friend right next to me and like very loud and was like, that girl's bulimic. And I was just sitting there like, no, I'm not. And I was so (laughs) mad, but I was just like, that's so rude. And it made coming back really, really hard because you're trying to focus on yourself and your health. And then there's this other piece of bullying, which really hinders your mental health as well. And with the eating disorder, you know, I was already on depression medication just because like everything was out of whack and I was so unhappy because it's just kind of hand in hand with the eating disorder. And so then you have these people like tearing you down at the same time. And you're in this really, you know, influential age where people saying things really does affect you. And it was, it was hard. That sounds very hard to deal with. It's so much going on. And then you have a bunch of, you know classic guys giving you a hard time for for no reason they probably thought they were being very clever so you had all this treatment they were making you eat all sorts of meals did you feel like that helped in the long run i would say having more focus on it definitely did initially before i went to treatment at the hospital i was just eating lunch with my guidance counselor that was kind of their solution of like you can stay in school but eat with your guidance counselor at lunch but the guidance counselor would leave me alone And so I would just throw my lunch out. So Mm -hmm. it never worked. I don't think she really quite understood what was going on. So I think having that time really did help. And then also, you know, it is so focused. Like there's, you do therapy every day. You do group therapy, you do art therapy. And so I think that it really was helpful for me. If you could go back in time and speak with yourself, what would you say? Do you think your younger self would listen? I think I would go back and just you know, tell myself that like nobody is perfect and no body is actually perfect. So I know that I wouldn't listen. There's nothing I feel like you can really say to somebody when they're going through that. It has to be them wanting the help. And also I would say to myself just not to listen to the other people. I was very much bullied during that time once I got back because everyone kind of found out that I had been gone for a month. It's hard to hide that. So I would say just don't care what other people are saying either because it's high school and high school ends. (laughs) (laughs) Really good advice. (laughs) Why do you think you were bullied when you got back to school? Kids are mean. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I, all those people like looking now, you know, their Facebooks or whatever. I don't know if that's still cool. Instagrams, but like they're all married and have kids and look like they're doing great things. And I think, you know, things that they said back then carry little weight, but I just think like, what kids do. I don't know why. And I think, you know, they had nothing better to talk about. And it was the most interesting thing probably happening at our school at that point was like, Oh, somebody has an eating disorder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It seems like to me kind of across your journey, people never knew what to say to you when you said you had an eating disorder, or maybe they were concerned. Like it seemed like your parents had a hard time kind of understanding what to say. Your sister kind of sounded upset with you almost when you told her that you had an eating disorder. Do you think that stems from people not understanding eating disorders or do you think it comes from somewhere else? I would say with my family, it was definitely that they just care so much and it hurt them so much to know that I was, you know, harming myself essentially. I think for some people it is like, it's just, especially during that time, like it's, and still it's such a stigma like that people don't want to talk about it. 
you don't want to talk about like if you have an unhealthy thought with food, even even now, I'm like, I don't know one person that hasn't ever had an unhealthy thought or feeling about themselves or food or whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. I've never met a guy or a girl who hasn't at least had that thought once. Mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where I think people just need to talk about it more. So you've clearly gone through a lot and it's a really amazing your journey. What about now? Do you still struggle with disordered eating or with food, the thoughts, or is it not really as much of a thing for you anymore? So now I would say I'm obviously better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think I can put all my focus and my energy into work and, and, you know, friendships and travel and things like that. I've found passions in other places, but I think that I still definitely have, you know, days where you think about it. I don't think it's ever something that's just going to go away. I think it's something that I'm always going to have to deal with. I just now know like the healthy ways of, you know, I'm not working out just because, oh, I had a cheeseburger. No, I'm working out because I want to be healthy. I think it's things like that or like changing your thought process because Mm -hmm. mine was always like, oh, I can't eat today because, you know, I had Oreos yesterday and it's like, you know, maybe I ate too many Oreos yesterday for like what people would consider healthy, but like, it's fine. I'll just get back on track with, you know, my healthy whole eating, you know, that I've been doing and so I think it's things like that that really do help. I definitely still struggle like anyone else. And, mm-hmm. you know, some points in your adulthood, you come across things that like you didn't really know existed. So like diet pills, like I couldn't really get my hands on those when I was younger. And even, you know, there were times where I have taken a medication that curbs appetite. So I'm, but I'm not perfect, but I, I definitely am much better now. And I'm not freaking out if I, you know, I'm a little bit what I think is overweight. Mm-hmm. I don't have a scale still. I don't use the scale to tell if I'm, you know, doing all right. So that's been, been helpful. Well, that's great. I, I think it's uh, progress, not perfection, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, <laughs> thanks so much for sharing. I know that's, you know, it's an extremely personal thing that you're sharing with us. And I think it's great for, you know, all of our listeners to hear your experience. You mentioned a lot about the stigma of eating disorders. Is there anything that you'd want to tell somebody maybe who's maybe listening to this podcast and who maybe they struggle with eating disorder themselves? What would you tell somebody like that? I would say just talk to somebody, somebody that you trust. I think I spent so much time dealing with it on my own that things got, you know, more out of hand than what, you know, it could have been. Mm -hmm. So I think just being open and talking and, and especially for their family and friends too. Like if you think somebody is having disordered, you know, eating patterns, like feel free to talk to them about it, but like definitely do it in the more caring way. Like, I think I kind of got bullied into it (laughs) by people at school, like, but just having an open and honest conversation, I think that that's huge with any kind of, you know, mental illness or, you know, disorder. Thank you, Laura, so much for your time and sharing your story. Next up, we have some experts in to talk more about the eating disorders with us. It's nice to meet you, Dr. Neff and Dr. McBrayer. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? Sure. So as you said, I'm Dr. Mallory Neff. I am actually a psychiatrist and also pediatrically trained. And my course of study and practice after graduation from residency has been pretty broad. But right now, some of my focus is a treatment of eating disorders. Awesome. Nice to have you. Thank you. I'm Dr. McBrayer. I'm currently an adolescent fellow, so I'll be in my third year soon. I'm pediatric trained and also did a year of internal medicine as well. So I have broad interests. My primary interest is in addiction medicine, and I'm hoping to do another fellowship in that. But I also work in the eating disorder realm. Thanks so much for coming in. It's always great to have some experts to help us out with kind of the nuts and bolts of things. We've got some questions to ask you guys, and we've also got some myths to either bust or confirm. So shall we get started? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. What are the most common types of eating disorders and what makes them different? How can you tell them apart? So in terms of the different types of eating disorders, they're the ones that people normally think about. Mm -hmm. So anorexia nervosa, which is characterized by poor body image, low weight or weight loss, and then bulimia, which is binging mm-hmm. or overeating and purging or vomiting laxatives, that sort of thing. There's binge eating disorder. And then there's this whole other, so there's atypical anorexia and some others that don't necessarily fit into these categories. Like for example, someone that just purges, but 
doesn't binge. So mm-hmm. they have their own diagnosis. Yeah. Do you mind telling us what do you mean by just purging? What is that? How does that manifest itself? So purging is basically when someone uses a behavior to get rid of something they ate. So either they eat and they may overexercise directly afterwards to get rid of the calories. Mm-hmm. They might try to vomit what they ate and they might take a laxative to try to have a bowel movement to get rid of what they just ate. Mm-hmm. So any behaviors like that. So I'm going to bring up a myth and you guys can you know talk to me a little bit about it and give me your thoughts. People with an eating disorder always know that they have an eating disorder. Is this true or false? I think that it depends. So there are certainly people who are aware that their food patterns and their eating patterns and their exercise patterns are not the same as other people. Mm -hmm. I think that because of some of the things that you talked about earlier in the podcast, where we do have a lot of social media influence about what our bodies are supposed to look like, you know, every day everyone is exposed to restricted diet ads, definitions of what counts as healthy and unhealthy food, you know, what exercise is supposed to look like, why Mm. someone might exercise, you know, exercise for body image versus for health and well-being. I think that there are often situations in which those social media images create a feeling that it is normalizing abnormal behavior, right? And so if someone is participating in some of these activities, they may view it as this is what everybody does, right? Everybody goes on extreme diets. Everybody restricts their foods to what's only considered healthy. Everybody wants to exercise. And when they exercise, they're thinking about getting rid of calories or doing these Mm -hmm. things. So I think it kind of depends on the level of the behavior and the severity and what type, Mm -hmm. right? So yes and no. (laughs) I think sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes people do know that they have an eating disorder or maybe they have an inkling about it, but then there's also people like Laura who at the time really didn't know that she had an eating disorder. Like Laura was saying that she was restricting to 140 Mm -hmm. calories a day. She may look at diet ads and say, oh, this is what they're Mm -hmm. touting. But someone that's binging and purging, they're not typically doing that out in the open. You're not seeing that in the media. They're wow. doing it in secret. They know that what they're doing is not something that their friends are doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of my patients with bulimia, a lot of times they know that what they're doing is not what other humans are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting what you were saying there. You know, seeing behaviors that maybe they think are normal but are not normal leads them to think what they're doing is normal. One thing that kind of follow-up question on that is for people that think what they're doing is normal, does that make it a lot harder to treat them? And if so, how do you go about kind of talking with somebody who doesn't think what they're doing is unhealthy or wrong? So I think that a lot of that can depend on the age. We know with restriction that people's brains don't work correctly, and so we don't expect them to have great insight into what they're doing. I think it's a lot more challenging with patients that don't necessarily agree or, or mm-hmm. as Laura said, think they're overweight when they're not. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of times in medicine where a family member or a physician are worried about something that the person who's having the experience is not worried about, Mm -hmm. right? And there are a lot of techniques that you can use to try and encourage someone to get to a place where they see the problem for themselves. Mm -hmm. I also think, unfortunately, sometimes things have to get really bad before people realize that they need help or it has to negatively impact someone else. And then they sort of have that awakening. That's not ever what we want to let happen, if possible. But there are times, I think, where someone does a little bit have to come to that on their own, hopefully with the help of their family and the help of a medical or psychiatric provider. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Dr. Neff. I think it's a lot like Laura's story, right? She didn't think she had a problem until she actually ended up passing out. And that led her to, you know, seek help. How, you know, maybe Laura, you want to uh, jump back in and answer this for us, but how, how can a friend approach someone that they're worried about with an eating disorder in a helpful way? I would say just being open and vulnerable, but also just cautious, like don't make it uncomfortable for them. I wouldn't kind of blame them. It's just, I would say just be supportive. I think that that's the biggest thing and it's the most obvious, but I think, you know, having somebody come up and, and not either question your behaviors, but just kind of say like, hey, I'm worried about you. I'm here for you. I think that that's honestly probably the best. You know, everyone wants to come up and be like, 
you're so skinny. What's the big deal? Like, you're fine. Like, you shouldn't be doing this. Like, I think just coming in and saying like, hey, you need somebody to talk to I'm here and kind of go from there. And hopefully the person will be more willing to open up. I think that bringing up that expression of worry is really important because it, like you said, it is easy to to say what what's wrong with you versus mm-hmm. I am worried about you. And it kind of brings that in the idea of often people don't recognize how their behaviors might be affecting other people. Mm-hmm. It's certainly human nature to have a knee-jerk defensive reaction when somebody says you are doing something wrong. So I think it's a great language to say, I'm worried about you as opposed to accusing them of something. One question I had is, what's the worst that can happen to somebody with an eating disorder? As we know, with Laura's story, you can end up in the hospital. But I was wondering, you know, can these eating disorders be potentially fatal? They can. And often without treatment are. Not everyone who has an eating disorder is going to have a severe eating disorder. Eating Mm -hmm. disorders are like any other situation. There can be people who have mild symptoms, moderately severe symptoms, and severe symptoms. But in that severe category, they often are fatal without intervention. I think we all can imagine what might happen if you're not eating enough food and you're losing weight, primarily related to heart failure. Um, So eventually their heart will not be able to function with the number of calories that they're taking in. But it's not just with someone who's had extreme weight loss. So the process of binging and purging or just purging at all can be something that can lead to imbalance in the natural salts and electrolytes in the blood that can cause seizures that can be fatal. Similarly, taking diet pills, often those contain stimulants or other situations that cause increases in heart rate. And there are some people that their hearts just genetically don't tolerate beating faster than they're supposed to. And Mm -hmm. so they can have abnormal rhythms and die from those. And laxative use similarly can cause situations that your body's electrolyte balances are out of whack and you have seizures or other things go on that ultimately end up being incompatible with life. Yeah, and thinking about also the suicide risk. So with anorexia, bulimia, Mm. all eating disorders, the suicide risk is really, really elevated. So these are actually have the highest death rate of all the psychiatric disorders with anorexia and bulimia, you're three to five times more likely to die young than your non-eating disorder peers. So that's why we take them so seriously. Yeah, certainly. It sounds like there's a variety of ways that things can go wrong with eating disorders. In your experience, when you're concerned about somebody and you think this person needs to come into the hospital, how do you convince somebody, you know, we need to get you to the hospital, we need to get you some extra help? I think a lot of it kind of like I answered before, is age. So if someone's less than 18, it's not really an issue as long as the parents are on board. And normally when someone's at a point where they need to be in the hospital, they've passed out, they've had some other adverse thing or their blood work is not good, the parents are typically on board. With adults, it's a lot more difficult. So obviously if you have an adult that's also suicidal, there are legal pathways to where you can get someone into the hospital legally. If they're not suicidal and it's just, it's a different situation, they're allowed to make their own choice. Mm -hmm. And so I think using the same first person language, like we were talking about before, I care about you, I am concerned about you, Mm -hmm. I'm afraid something bad will happen if you don't go to the hospital. And then beyond that for our adult patients, That's kind of where we have to leave it and hope that they make the right choice for their health. Yeah, I think family support in that is really important, which can also be challenging because we have rules about what we can share with other family members. So I think it can be very challenging to get individuals who are adults that clearly need to be hospitalized into the hospital if they don't accept that. Often, though, when adults are at a point that they need to be hospitalized, there is a level of medical frailty that they are aware of. Sort of Laura made the example of feeling dizzy and potentially blacking out. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they are aware and are at least willing to medically protect themselves. Sometimes it's the after the medical hospital that's hard to say, okay, well, I'm better now. You know, I'm not in imminent threat of dying, but I'm not going to go to therapy and I'm not going to do these other things because I'm okay. What are some risk factors that make people more likely to have an eating disorder? You know, we've touched on it a little bit. We've talked about social media, but what about the person themselves? 
you know, not society as much. We believe there's a genetic factor to it. So having a family history of eating disorders, having a parent with an eating disorder greatly increases your chance of having an eating disorder, certain personality types. So Laura talked about being a perfectionist. I think we could probably write that on almost every single patient we see, (laughs) particularly with anorexia nervosa. But with the other eating disorders, we can see that as well. That idea that everything has to be perfect and, you know, if those patients are going to do something, they're going to do it all the way. And if that Mm -hmm. pertains to weight loss, that obviously leads to all kinds of problems. Other risk factors can include transgender, gender nonconforming youth and young adults. Seems like the the rate in that population is about 16%, so it's pretty high. And then other risk factors like trauma or other, we call them adverse childhood events, so things that happen when you're younger can increase your risk of maybe not having an eating disorder, but you may have it anyway, but may develop it younger. So maybe the potential was in there all along and they kind of unmask those behaviors. I had another myth for you guys here. So purging behaviors like vomiting or taking laxative help you lose weight. So I think in the short term they can. I saw an ad yesterday that said each of us have five to 25 pounds of toxic waste in our bodies. Not true. There's a reason we have a liver. There's a reason we have intestines. But I think that adds to this idea that if I eat something and then get it out of me as quickly as possible, that I'll lose weight. A lot of our patients with bulimia will be a normal weight, and that's because you're still getting some nutrition, Mm -hmm. um, some energy from that food. And so it's definitely not an optimal way to lose weight. You end up with all kinds of electrolyte imbalances and things like we talked about. And so I wouldn't consider it a weight loss method more harmful than it would be weight loss. Dr. Neff, there are so many trendy diets out there. I always see people posting about keto diets, going vegan, or doing intermittent fasting, my least favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Terry Crews comes to mind as someone who's a huge fan of intermittent fasting. Obviously, we want people to be healthy, and, you know, there's some talk that some of these things can be healthy, but how do you know when your diet has gone from the health end of the spectrum into the disordered eating end of the spectrum? So interestingly, I think that the answer is when you get on the restricted diet. Um, So I think we have a lot of culturally sanctioned disordered eating in the United States and other places too. So for instance, the keto diet was developed to help children with epilepsy have fewer seizures. No one ever said that that was a healthy way to eat. Right. Um, That was not the intention of that diet. You know, intermittent fasting is something that a lot of people have success with, but there are going to be a lot of people that also don't have success with that. And there's evidence to say that intermittent fasting can lead to increased binging behaviors. Really, if your concern is that you're dieting and it is a restricted diet versus contemplating a whole diet where you're including all the appropriate, you know, nutrients in your diet. That's the point at which you should say, maybe I don't need to do this restricted diet. I think people have a lot of goals about how quickly they want to lose weight. I think we have a tendency to overfocus on what's called healthy and what's not healthy, and that, you know, all food really does fit in your diet. The literature actually on what is most consistent to lead to weight loss or who the most healthy people in the world are is very inconsistent. It is a hard thing to track. It's a hard thing to study. And really what we know is that having a varied diet is the most healthy thing that you can do. Yeah. And I would say, like, things have gone too far when it's consuming your thoughts. So Mm -hmm. you may be someone that's even getting a variety of things. And people would look at what you're eating and say, well, you're getting enough calories. You're eating from all the different colors. But if it's all you're thinking about, Mm -hmm. or even if exercise is all you're thinking about, then... That's a miserable way to live. Sounds um, not, so that fun. our goal with treatment is to restore normal eating patterns and get the noise out of your head too. So if mm-hmm. someone is like that, then probably they need to think about, you know, do, do I need help for this? So as we talked about earlier in the podcast, it's hard to look at somebody and just say they have an eating disorder. But Laura and our experts, I wanted to ask you guys, maybe we can start with Laura here. Looking back on when you were starting to have an eating disorder, what were some behaviors that changed that maybe somebody could pick up on now looking back that said, hey, you know, maybe she's developing some worrying eating patterns? I would say specifically with the restricting, you know, with the anorexia, it was more 
like I would play with food on my plate. Like if I was, especially if I was with in a group of people, you don't want them to really know. I would just sit there and kind of play with my food, like to make it look like I was eating. Cause nobody really notices. They're all really caught up in conversation. So if you look like you're like mm. moving your fork around, I feel like it kind of helped. <laughs> but if somebody was watching me, they would notice like, you're not actually really doing anything. You're not really taking bites of your food. I would constantly say like, I already ate or, you know, I'm not actually really that hungry right now. So just like kind of, if somebody was with me earlier in that day and they knew like you haven't eaten all day, I think that that was a huge one that people kind of started to pick up on. They're like, no, you haven't, you haven't eaten today. And then honestly, during my process with my eating disorder, I did kind of fluctuate between anorexia and bulimia later on. I started the purging behaviors. So I think, you know, disappearing after you eat, that was my biggest thing. Like I'd always have to go to the bathroom. I was like, oh, I just got to go to the bathroom or got to take a shower after dinner. And that was like a huge sign. It was like every day it was a pattern. So I think those are definitely like the biggest signs I think that I had besides just like the stereotypical when I'd go to the dentist, they could see my, my teeth were not in the greatest shape, which today makes me laugh because I was a perfectionist and I was having bad teeth. So (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I think that comment about changes in patterns or suddenly having this very rigid pattern of behavior that didn't exist before. So you had mentioned, Laura, that it was an everyday thing, right? Every meal, you know, it was doing this and then that. So just noticing some of those things where if it's I'm eating lunch with my friend and, you know, in the dorm in the cafeteria and every single day they eat the exact same thing, you know, or every single day they order the exact same thing and then they only eat half of it. Right. So those are the kinds of just really rigid behaviors that sometimes start to happen that other people might notice. But it's it's very hard. I think it's also very challenging because we all have a tendency within our culture in the United States to talk about diet and exercise and body a lot. And so those kinds of red flags aren't always there because they get lost in all the noise of talking about all those things all the time. What are some common triggers or or life events that, you know, are frequently associated with people developing eating disorders? So I think some of them are very similar to the risk factors we talked about. So we do see sometimes where a traumatic thing will happen and then someone will develop or start showing signs of an eating disorder out of that. Sometimes these behaviors will start in puberty and then someone goes off to college and where they get their food is different. They have to be a lot more self-motivated to go get food. Also, there's no one to look and say, oh, you didn't eat dinner, you didn't eat lunch. And so we'll see people getting sick at college and coming home and the parents noticing. So maybe it didn't start then, but they had more control over their behaviors at that time. So that's what we'll see most often. Also, the stressors of young adulthood and having more control over your life, but maybe feeling out of control with those things because you're expected to pay for things, but you're still in school or Mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out your career path. And so eating disorders a lot of times will come out of that place of needing to control something. And so we'll see that. So they aren't necessarily triggered by bad things, but we can definitely see it in that age group because there's just a lot that's happening during young adulthood, late adolescence. The other big trigger, actually, Laura's story is not uncommon. So someone who's had an illness that had unintentional weight loss, you know, it wasn't purposeful in the beginning. And then it just kind of continues like, oh, I like this. You know, I didn't mean to lose weight, but I like what happened. And then when I start gaining weight again, because hopefully whatever caused my unintentional weight loss resolved, you know, then I don't like that. That becomes uncomfortable. And so then the behaviors start to control that weight gain. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected eating disorders? I think that it has really isolated people. And that the message back in March where everyone was saying, well, you know, you're at home, you have all this extra time, now's the time to get healthy, that has really led to a strong increase in the number of, I mean, I see teenagers, but adults too, who have developed eating disorders over the last year. Wow. You know, it is a very common sequence of events that, again, you start with some, I'm going to eat healthier and I'm going to exercise more. And then for a percentage of people who start that process, when it becomes a problem, they cannot stop themselves and it becomes excessive. So I would say almost every patient that we've seen that is new in our clinic in the last year, 
you could copy and paste the history of when their <laughs> symptoms started from one person to another. They were okay. Maybe they had some mild anxiety. Maybe they had some mild depression. Maybe they had started to change their diet a little bit. But in March, there was a major change in the way they ate, in their exercise patterns, and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I would say that starting in August, everybody reports the same set of symptoms starting at the same time. And even even now, almost a year later, I would say the new patients that we're seeing are just individuals who got started a little slower or someone took a little longer to notice. It, it's still affecting people. And it has really, I think all of mental health has really suffered over the last year of isolation and change in our normal daily routine and just how the world functions. But certainly for eating disorders as well, it has increased a lot. How do you guys treat eating disorders? We talked a little bit about kind of the nutritional regimen that Laura was on, but are there any medications or things that you can give people to help them? So treating eating disorders is a a complex process. So it's not just medications. Really, food is the most important medicine. (laughs) Normalizing the eating behavior, whether it's someone who's having binging and purging or just purging or someone who's restricting or any combination of those things working on redeveloping their sort of internal sense of hunger and redeveloping their internal sense of what's safe food and what's good to eat is the most important thing. Unfortunately, because of part of the eating disorder, that can be very challenging, that all by itself. So there is a lot of therapy that is involved in that, guidance from medical providers and dietitians. Sometimes we do use medications. There are a few medications that have indication for eating disorders, but those are really not what we focus on. And they're really to be considered an augmentation to those other parts of the treatment that are more important, which is normalizing eating behaviors, stopping eating disordered behaviors, and using therapy to support all that and guide people to recovery. You know, wow, until you really spelled it out there, I didn't realize how many facets you have to take into account when you're treating an eating disorder and how these things all have to kind of happen at the same time or in a synergistic way. How long would you guys say it typically takes someone to recover from an eating disorder? And, you know, is relapse a part of that recovery? I'll jump in here. I honestly, obviously for every person, it's different. I have met some friends who also went through, you know, disordered eating behaviors and they were fine after, you know, six months, a year. I think one, it depends on how far into it they are and also just the person and what kind of treatment they've gotten and the support that they have around them. So I would say, I don't think anyone ever fully heals from an eating disorder. I don't know if I'm wrong. I'll let the experts speak on that one, Mm -hmm. but Again, I still have some disordered thoughts and feelings, but I think it's just about managing them in a healthy way. Typically speaking, we think after nutritional recovery that it takes about six to 12 months. So we usually say for about a year that people will be in intensive, specific eating disorder treatment. And that doesn't mean in a hospital. That's more often than not, that's in an eating disorder center or clinic. Usually people are in treatment for about a year of intensive treatment. That doesn't necessarily mean they're 100% recovered at the end of that year, but that's the average. Wow, that's a long time to Mm -hmm. be treated for something. And I'm very happy that we have you two experts helping to take care of people with eating disorders. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show and helping us out. We definitely needed your expertise. I have one final question for you guys. Do you have any recommendations or resources that people can go to, maybe if they're listening to this podcast and say, hey, Maybe I do have an eating disorder or maybe I need some help. Where can they go to get some help? Sure. The biggest kind of clearinghouse, I would say, for eating disorder information and support is the National Eating Disorders Association, or NEDA. Uh, So they have a website. It's nationaleatingdisorders.org. And the reason I like to highlight that particular website is that they can help you with access to resources if you need them or community supports or treatment. But right at the front on their webpage, the first thing you see is a chat from their website option, a call or a text option for support if you need it. So they give you a lot of options as to how you want to access that support and help. The phone number is 
2237 and you can use that number to call or to text and then like I said if you prefer just like an online chat they have those resources too so I think anybody reaching out to them there is support available in the moment for any support that someone might need and I agree I think that's probably the most important resource the American Academy of Pediatrics also has lots of resources on their, it says healthy kids, but it's really to young adults. So really it's like 11 to 26 year olds, if mm-hmm. you think about like adolescents. So there are resources on there for adolescents, young adults, and also for parents who have children that are or young adults that are going through this. And then I like the website youngwomenshealth.org and youngmenshealth.org. It's a lot of general health, primarily targeted towards college age individuals, but they also have some information on eating disorders as well. All right, that's a wrap. I want to thank our expert guests today, Dr. Neff and Dr. McBrayer, for joining us and providing our audience with some great advice and insights into eating disorders. And a special thanks to Laura for sharing her own story of a struggle as a teen with an eating disorder. We appreciate you all so much, and thanks for coming into the studio today. Until next time, this has been another episode of Safe Tea by Rachel's First Week. Safe Tea is brought to you by Rachel's First Week. Executive producer, Mike Wilson from Airborne. Sound engineer, Ben Vodder. And a very special thanks to American Medical Response, NASCAR, and Healthcare Initiatives for their financial support of this podcast. Visit us on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter at hashtag Rachel's First Week. Don't forget the A in Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. We want to hear from you, so contact us at rachelsfirstweek.org. Don't forget to subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Safe Tea. This is Georgia signing off. See you next time.